Uh, let me hand out our text for this morning because there's also a little bit of a, uh, a list of stuff at the bottom of page two. So we've got expecting maybe five people because this is Memorial Day and here we are. A full house. How cool is that? That's pretty neat. Okay, so we looks like we got everybody covered. Good. Uh, one little thing that you will note that's different about this handout is in the upper right hand corner. We now have a place for the past audio Recordings can be found on a regular basis. Uh, the limit is my ability to get them uploaded. Um, but I've created a website called InnerAltar.com, which is based on Romans 12.2, where we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And where is the sacrifice presented? And that's on an altar, because it's kind of a metaphor. The idea is that we present our bodies as living sacrifices on the inner altar of our soul, and as part of that is a ongoing way of studying the word. I've uploaded about six or seven of them now, just kind of an experiment. So you will have to tell me whether it works. It works on my system. You can probably try it on your phone, on your web, on your web browser. You can download them. You can make it as a podcast. You can do whatever you want. Just don't tell me you don't like what I have to say. Uh, <laughs> And I am, it is limited by how much I can upload every month. There's, because I have to buy a package uh, for bandwidth and all that. So for now, all we have is Thessalonians and one test from Galatians. But I'll start working my way backwards as I can. So anyway, let me know if it works. Because I know the Dropbox thing was not working for nearly everyone. Uh, because when you went to the Dropbox folder, it suddenly downloaded. Uh, three gigabytes of stuff and blew up your computer. So this way at least you can have something to get at. So we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the last verses of the chapter. Uh, the typical header in your scripture is calling this final instructions and benediction. And that's really kind of what it is. We have here... Um, one guy described it, a beginner's class on church life. Almost, we have Discovery One here at, at Camelback, where you come in and you sit down and figure out you know, kind of what the church is about. But then Discovery Two gets a little more in depth as to what it means to be a church member, to be living as a Christ follower within the confines of the church. Well, this is more like Discovery Two, but just in a list. Uh, one, one teacher I came across called it the 20 commandments of the Christian life. Well, when I revised it at the bottom, it's only 16. But still, it's that idea that there are a lot of little quips or little statements, little phrases. Uh, I would say well over half of the phrases at the bottom of that chart, I have found single sermons on each one of them. I don't have the time to do that this morning, 
So we're going to kind of do a surface look at it, at least give you a reminder of what some of these things are. The first thing we look at is verse 12. You know, we ask you, brothers, verses 12 and 13, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, doesn't it make you wonder what's going on in the Thessalonian church that Paul would have to write this? Didn't you think there would be some, corn, some sort of uh, natural respect and esteem for those who are trying to lead the congregation? My guess is that despite the fact that Paul has said, you guys are doing a great job, the, because he brought this up means more than likely there was some uh, rumblings, some challenges. Now, you might say, well, it's because they didn't have Paul. Paul wasn't there. But we do know who was. Over in Acts 19, verse 29, Acts 20, verse 4, and Acts 27, verse 2, there are two leaders of the Thessalonian church by, that are named by, Paul, by Luke in the book of Acts. You've got Aristarchus and Secondus are both mentioned more than once in Acts as leaders of the Thessalonian church. So we have people. They just not our, you know, they're not on our baseball card list. I mean, they're not the ones that we collect. We collect Paul and we collect Timothy, but we never really want to trade the baseball card for Secondus or Aristarchus. I mean, they're just not the uh, the MVPs necessarily, but to the Thessalonian church they were. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. I had someone bring up the fact, well, Paul's saying that they're over you. Aren't church leaders supposed to be servants? Isn't that just the opposite? They're not over you. They serve you. Well, I think we know what the answer to that is. Those that we have brought into our congregations as our spiritual leaders are there to help us and lift us up and guide us as shepherds. If shepherds and sheep, if there were all chiefs and no Indians, we'd have a problem. If there's all shepherds and no sheep, kind of hard to sell anything at the marketplace. There's no one out there. We're all just shepherding each other. So that comment, I just well, it's not that they're powerful, but they have authority. And they have authority to admonish you or to warn you about bad behavior. Now, I read entire sermons on church discipline, keying off of this verse. It could be appropriate, uh, but I'm not quite sure the word admonish means discipline necessarily. It has a, an under, underlying meaning of the word warn. So you have someone who's maybe not behaving quite the right way or they're starting to say things that are destructive. There has to be someone who can come alongside and go in a pastoral and gentle way at first. Maybe you need to rethink that. 
Now, we've all met people that are bombastic and they're always right. Like me, I'm always right. I mean, one of the fun things, when I'm at a writer's conference where I was this last week, um, I'll have these long discussions at various meals and other things. I'll say, now, you've probably all gone to multiple classes where you have teachers are giving you conflicting advice. One says do it this way, another says do it that way. So if you have that question, I know the right answer. And they all kind of laugh, and I went, well, it's just that's the way this guy does it, that's the way this guy does it, you figure it out which way works for you. But in this case, you know, our society says you shouldn't be admonishing, you shouldn't be telling people how to act. You should be tolerant. It's up to them. If they're not hurting anybody, leave them alone, right? 30 years ago, in the book Closing of the American Mind, Ellen Bloom wrote, tolerance has become the chief virtue in Western civilization. If you call anyone's behavior, no matter how outrageous, evil, or wrong, you are viewed as arrogant and intolerant. And obviously, arrogance or intolerance is the only sin in our culture. Quote, there is no enemy other than the person who is not open to everything. Now that was 30, 35 years ago when he wrote that. Where are we now? Uh, it's open season. There is nothing wrong in any form of behavior. Now we're pointing at the secular society, yes. So it's easy to do that. But it's beginning to encroach in the church. Church tends to, unfortunately, tends to reflect culture rather than counter culture. Isn't it interesting? We are the counterculture now. We're the hippies of the 60s who are saying, oh, you know, the culture's got to change. Well, yeah, it does to a biblical viewpoint. It is not loving to be tolerant of someone's sin. Sin always damages the sinner and those who are sinned against. Sin destroys families. Worse, when those who profess to be Christians continue in sin, it tarnishes God's glory before the world. And if we truly love others and seek God's glory, we will be intolerant of their sin. So respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and then esteem them very highly in love. To esteem someone highly in love because of their work. How do we do that? And that's not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer this question. How do we esteem very highly in love because of the work. How do we express that? And I, I'm not just talking to a senior pastor. There are multiple staff people. There are other people who are in support. You can't just say, well, only those who get paid are the ones we actually respect. How do we respect and esteem highly in love those who labor among us? And I'm not going to talk until you do. Gratitude. Gratitude? Very good. And I think expressing that with 
notes or calls? I notes, know, calls, and verbally. So let them know. Let them know that we appreciate their work. Yeah. If you do disagree, then maybe don't be, like not be openly critical, but take us Right. Don't stand up in the stirring service and say, you're wrong, Pastor. You know, that's the wrong Greek word. That's not a good way of esteeming someone. I'm kidding. But, yeah, in other words, if there's a... I put it this way. If you are in disagreement, you may not be right. So the way to go is say to, to that leader, whoever has uh, made that statement, going... Help me understand how you came to that conclusion. Because I came to a different one. And let's have a conversation. And if you end up on opposite sides of the, 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 the debate, fine. Haven't we talked about the rapture and the end times and some of these things in these verses? And you kind of go, hey, nobody knows how it's going to end. Nobody. So to make it a litmus test... I think you had mentioned that you basically were asked not to speak at a church because they found out you were in a differing opinions. Like, oh, come on. An hour before the service. An hour before the service. He was asked not to speak. I mean, yeah. Another way, well, obviously prayer. And, and true prayer for, for those leaders. And kind of... think of it. It can be as simple as coming to say AC, going, how can I pray for you? Not for your ministry in the church, but you. Specifically. That means something. I don't, uh, you know, there's maybe a few of you who've served on staff in a church here in this room. <laughs> but not most of us haven't. We have no idea. We have no idea what it's like to be on call 24-7. We have no idea that work is Sunday. For us, it's a day off. And we're going to church because we want to. It's not to say the pastor doesn't want to. Uh, <laughs> but it's their job. This is their work. So when's their day off? Oh, the one day that they get off. See, you, you, you start putting it in that context and realize the calling that is the calling to the pastorate or the calling of the church leadership, even those who volunteer, the ones who greet us on Sunday morning, they're called to that. This is something they like to do. This is something they enjoy welcoming others. That's a special gift. 
I don't have that gift. Hey, yeah, sorry, go away. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be a great person to have at the front? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I can't shake your hand. You, you just don't look right. Um, I'm kidding. But does any, do anybody remember J.P. Hugs? Oh, yeah. Okay, he was a longtime member of the church here. His license plate was J.P. Hugs. And he hugged everyone who came into the congregation. Our first Sunday here as visitors, it was a little overwhelming to have this gentleman come up to me and bear hug me in the lobby of the church. I don't know you. <laughs> and it was this, oh, thank you for coming. We're so glad to have you in the house of the Lord. And shaking the hand, at, it's like, well, that was different. <laughs> but how welcome do you feel when that happens? That was a ministry that he had. Well, I could go on. Was his name really Hugs? No, that was his nickname. Pavelda. John Pavelda. Pavelda. John oh. Pavelda. That's the JP. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, uh, responding in obedience? You know, like the two servants, one servant said, yeah, I'll do it, and didn't do it. The other said, no, I won't do it, but then he did it. Mm -hmm. So how about, you know, if we submit in obedience when we're asked, whether it's a moral thing or whether it's simply a service thing, yes. you know, whether we will o obey or submit to their suggestion as opposed Because that respects uh -huh. and esteems them. Right. That's now, at the same time, always do it with discernment because we all know of stories of those in spiritual authority who use it as a weapon. And the next thing they're, te they're telling you that you need to wear red, not green, on Sunday morning. And then, oh, you need, and they start arranging marriages, and other weird things happen. I mean, there are books called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. So be discerning, obviously, but at the same time, there is that authority that is biblical. And we need to think about that. Okay, let's keep going. So, that, that first one, those first two verses, kind of relate specifically to uh, the pastorate or the workers in the church, those who are laboring among us uh, on behalf of the church. After this, it starts into, let's just call it, the Christian life. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle. Oh, look, the same word admonish but now it's us that are supposed to be doing it but who are we admonishing the idol not i-d-o-l the i-d-l-e uh, William Barclay translated that word as admonish the lazy uh, the Greek word atakoi is actually is a word you a word used to describe a worker who is committed to be there but didn't show up. Just what you were saying. If they say, I would like you to do this, and you say, sure, and you don't show up. But Charlie and you were both called. Charlie showed up, but you didn't. Charlie should be talking to you and saying, hey, buddy, where were you? Did you forget? Oh, I forgot. Yeah, okay, that happens. But it's, ah, I just didn't feel like it. Dude, 
<laughs> you don't do that. I mean, seriously, it's that simple. As one word, dude says a lot. <laughs> Depending how you want to phrase it. In fact, one children's book we gave to our son-in-law, it's the only word in the entire children's book. And you have different scenarios, and the one word is in, on each page, and it's dude. And it, if you say it differently in each context, it means something different. It's a wonderful English word. Dude! <laughs> dude. <laughs> anyway, kind of fun. But to admonish the idle, those who are not doing what they said they were going to do. It's also used of the soldier who uh, defects or runs away, the coward. It's not a bad thing to kind of come alongside them and say, you know, let's not do this. This is not you're lording it over them. You're not their boss, but you're a co-worker, a friend who's coming alongside saying, you need to rethink this. Ray Stedman said this something about this section. He said, I don't understand what has happened to the Christian community. Believers who go regularly to church and profess to believe the Bible often seem to go along with practices of the world around them with hardly any consciousness that what they were doing is unbiblical and really is wrong. They lie without hesitation. They evade paying their bills. They cheat on their taxes. They ignore needy people. They fail to keep appointments. They freeload shamelessly. They lose their tempers. They grow critical and caustic. They desert their mates. If the Apostle Paul were here, he would be very concerned about this. To him, the mark of the true Christian faith is that it changes everything you do and say. Repeat that. The mark of the true Christian faith is that it changes everything you do and say. So you admonish the idle. You encourage the faint-hearted. The Greek word there can also mean the timid. And that comment, one, one, uh, I think it was John Stott brought up in saying, there are those within the family of God who are timid and they will disappear if you do not come alongside them and encourage them. It's interesting when you're at a, again, a writer's conference where I was this last week. I probably talked to two or three hundred different writers. But there was one woman sitting at, at the, uh, the, the meal table and she's writing a book on how to succeed as an introvert in the church. Which is interesting because just the fact that she was sitting there asking that question was a contrast to what she goes, I, I am an introvert. I can't talk to people. Sitting here, it took me three days to get up the courage to sit at this table and ask you this question. And there are a lot of people like me. And I'd like to encourage them, but it's just this awkwardness of personality. And, and I thought, when I was reading this, I thought of her. And I thought, well, there's someone who, if someone just came alongside them, patted them on the back, saying, hey, can you come along with us to this meal? Can you sit with us at this gathering? I noticed you were over by yourself. Can you, here, let's sit over here. 
They're not going to say, can I sit there? That's uncomfortable. But they will accept an invitation. It's encouragement. It's the body of Christ. You might be one of them yourself. You know that feeling. It's just awkward. And then they say to help the weak. Well, the definition of the weak are those without strength. This doesn't mean the sick. It says there's some who are spiritually weak, some are physically weak. Look for them, help them, and then be patient with them all. As I wrote here, there is no excuse for impatience. The Greek word behind the word patience is also translated in the fruit of the Spirit as long-suffering. Amy Carmichael wrote this. She was the missionary who went to India in 1900 and served there for 55 years. She wrote, If I have not the patience of my Savior with the souls who grow slowly, if I know little of travail till Christ be fully formed in them, in them then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Some people grow quickly, some people grow slowly. Neither is right, neither is wrong. But if we lose patience with them and give up on them, then we have not been their brother or sister. And the next one. See that no one repays evil for evil. Obviously, Paul never drove on the Phoenix Freeway. <laughs> I mean... This one, yeah, it sounds easy, right? You know, no, see that no one repays evil for evil. We can go find that one all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38 through 40. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, I don't know about you, but I would usually fall along the lines of this story that I came across. A story about a truck driver who had dropped into an all-night restaurant in Broken Bow, Bow, Nebraska. I mean, we're talking like two or three in the morning. The waitress had just served him when three swaggering leather-jacketed motorcyclists of the Hell's Angel type entered into the restaurant, surrounded the trucker, spoiling for a fight. One grabbed the hamburger off his plate, another took a handful of his french fries, a third picked up his coffee and began to drink, drink it. The trucker didn't respond as one would expect. Instead, he calmly rose, rose picked up his check, and walked to the front of the diner where the cash register was, put the money on the register and walked out the door. The waitress had followed him to the front to put the money in the register and she stood watching out the door as he drove away. When she turned back to the bikers, they said, well, he's not much of a man, is he? She said, well, I don't really have an answer to that, but..." I can say that he's not much of a truck driver because he just ran over three motorcycles in the parking lot. <laughs> 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 I 
that's usually where I stand. It's like, okay, you know. You know, it's the old adage that revenge is a dish best served cold. In the Christian life, revenge is a dish that is never served. It is so hard to practice this one. When someone does us evil, every bit of our defensiveness comes up saying, do you know who you're dealing with? I'm in a business situation right now where I had spent two months negotiating and at the 11th hour, the other party reneged on the deal and I have no power to change it. And so I have to accept what he had changed the thing to do and basically I'm in a much worse financial situation because of it. My reaction, the burn, the bridge, the, the road, the entire forest, his house, and everyone in it. That's my natural reaction. And it just makes me angry. And I'm going, but, is that the right thing to do? No, it's not. You're repaying evil for evil. I'm not saying the guy was evil, it's just, it was wrong, and it was unfair. Because the rest of the verse says, but always seek. And that Greek word for seek, believe it or not, is the same word that's translated as persecute. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul talks himself as a persecutor, and it's the same word. That is someone who is pursuing vigorously. I mean, with intense focus. So when he says, but always focus, be intently, even persecute the idea of doing good for another. Wow, what a contrast. I mean, think of Paul using that word right here as a man who later describes himself as a persecutor. He knows what that's like. He knows what it means to be sold out, to go after something or someone. And now he turns that and he says, you need to always, note the word always, because we'll see that again in the next verse, you will always persecute, pursue vigorously to do good for one another. You know, these are all really easy to follow. I mean, you know, that's why they're in the Bible. I mean, because it's, the Bible's easy. No. The life of holiness, the life of sanctification, the life of the Christian life, if it were easy, anyone could do it. And there's a lot of people who think they can because they think it's easy. So he says to always persecute, to always go after what is good. And then he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. The three impossible commands. So let's look at these a little bit. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I would have preferred he had written 
Rejoice when I'm happy, pray when I need something, and give thanks when I feel like, or if it's Thanksgiving Day. (laughs) Wouldn't you rather that had been the admonition? I mean, rejoice when you feel happy. Okay, I can do that. I feel really good. No, rejoice always. Seriously. Always? Oh, he's just being euphemistic. He doesn't really mean that. If he didn't really mean that, then why did he write? And why did he use the word always in the previous verse? Huh. Rejoice always. You know, I actually start, wanted to look into the meaning of the word rejoice because it has the R-E in front of it. So that would suggest there's a word joyce. Well, there isn't. So that whole rabbit trail landed me nowhere. But rejoice, the key is the middle word, joy. Now, we studied the concept of joy when we were in the fruit of the Spirit. The second of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. 2 Corinthians 6.10. He goes on this long litany of contrasts, and he says... Uh, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Then in Romans 5.3, he writes, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. James 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And, you know, we've explored this before, but doggone it. I don't like this verse. Because, you know, when that thing happened the other day in the business thing, I was not joyful. In fact, you could say I was the opposite of joyful. (laughs) I was angry. I was stirred up. I was mad. I was frustrated. So does this mean we have to always be upbeat and never sad? What does this this mean? Oh, oh, by the way, a little trivia note. This, by the way, is the shortest verse in the entire New Testament. Not Jesus wept. Jesus wept, uh, John 11, 34, is the shortest verse in the English Bible. But if you count the Greek letters... (laughs) This is the shortest verse in the New Testament in Greek. Two words, very tight, rejoice always. It's short, it's to the point, but isn't it interesting, the other shortest verse is weeping. And here it's rejoicing. So, I'll throw out the non-rhetorical question. What does this mean? How do you rejoice always? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, Paul and Silas in the prison in Berea. Mm-hmm. They had just been beaten. And what were they doing in prison? Singing praises and rejoicing. So kind of like he practices what he preaches. Yep, he is. Yeah, it's not so, so how do we make that practical? I mean, 
Seriously, guys, this is not easy. You can be, you can grieve, you can be sad, but still have that joy. Like your example with your mother, you right. knew that you knew where she was going, and the funeral was actually a very mm -hmm. positive thing. But there is still grief. Right. So it's like um, not despairing, perhaps. Not despairing, but it, let's even make it uh, not necessarily something like that, but let's say, let's take, let's take this bad contract situation. Okay, how am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of that? I think that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I think it is, well said. it takes you out of yourself. Well you said. cannot do it, just like you can't save yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't live this life mm -hmm. on your own strength. Absolutely. It's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that allows someone, of course, because it's unnatural, totally. And that's the whole point of this entire passage. Because note the next verse after the three impossible. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's what he's leading towards. You quench the Holy Spirit if you're not rejoicing, not praying, and not, th and not having thanksgiving. You're not letting the Spirit through you, do what you cannot do on your own. Oh, I was going to bring up, go up to verse 9. How can we do these? I didn't you were drawn in with the Holy Spirit. But why? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's how we do it. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit because of that. And you've seen it, where someone is in really dire circumstances, either physical, mental, spiritual, financial, whatever, and yet you sense this joy in them, and you're going, you're not normal. And the answer is, you're right. It's not me. Don't say, oh, you're amazing, because they're not the one who's amazing. God is. I mean, you can admire someone. For example, one of the pe people who sat down across from me for the 15-minute pitch in their book idea was a woman who had written two complete books about her husband's life, and she was going to do a trilogy, but she can't because he shot himself seven months ago. And I'm going, what? And she's just sitting there very humble, calm, and saying, I don't know what to do. And I've written the story, but now it's mine. And I don't know, I, I, she's all kind of confused and, and was here for advice. I couldn't get past the fact that she's sitting there sharing this with me without, you know, I didn't sense this, uh, any sort of strangeness in it. It was more of a, the pastoral side of, I am so sorry. She goes, well, God wasn't surprised, but I sure was. And then we had this interesting conversation. Whoa, I could admire that, but it's not her. It's the power of Christ through her. Because now she can speak to others who have been in similar circumstances and are in difficulties and she can speak in a way that no one else can. I certainly couldn't speak to someone else like that. She could. 
Anyway. So it goes to pray without ceasing. The amount of uh, ink that has been spilled on this topic. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's an interesting concept. I mean, even Charles Spurgeon basically says, well, you know, it's not meaning that you have to kneel all the time because that would be uncomfortable to be kneeling 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of your life. Now, there are maybe some ascetics that try to do that, but that isn't what it's saying. He said, "Here's he says, pray without ceasing. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which, by the way, he has an entire sermon on this verse, which is wonderful. I recommend you look it up. It's free on the Internet. It's Sermon 1039, in case you want to look it up. That precept in one stroke overthrows the idea that there is a particular time in which prayer is more acceptable or more proper than at others. If I am to pray without ceasing, then every second must be suitable for prayer. And there is not one unholy moment in the hour, nor one unaccepted hour in the day, nor one unhallowed day in the year. The Lord has not appointed a certain week for prayer, but all weeks should be weeks of prayer. Neither has he said, neither has he said that one hour in the day is more acceptable than another. All time is equally legitimate for supplication, equally holy, equally accepted with God, or else he would not have told us to pray without ceasing. It, there is a... Um, Russian Orthodox prayer methodology. You heard of the Jesus Prayer, they call it? Anybody heard of that? Okay, Tom, you have. It's the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And the idea is to say that all the time in, in your head. I mean, seriously, all the time. There was one, one uh, lady wrote a book on, uh, on this. She's Russian Orthodox, and she was writing on prayer without ceasing. She uses prayer beads that has 100 beads, and she will say that continuously. She has them in her hand. So she's sitting in a bus. She has downtime. Now, it doesn't mean, but even when she is talking to people, her fingers are doing this. It's her discipline. Now, that seems kind of odd. But it's based on a book by an author named Anonymous in the 19th century in Russia. And it was called The Way of a Pilgrim. I read it a long time ago. It's absolutely fascinating. Of a man's effort to say this Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me at all times, and how it transformed his life and how he responded to people. And he was wandering the countryside kind of this traveling uh, evangelist, a Johnny Appleseed of prayer, I guess you could say. He was just talking and the, the, the country was transformed by this man's efforts. Another uh, well-known book on the topic is Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of God. You may be familiar with this. This book is, what, 60 pages long? It's like a booklet. And it was a 
a, a Catholic monk in a monastery who made it his effort to be completely conscious of the presence of God at all times. So you have descriptions of him washing the dishes and planting the flowers in the garden and in prayer time. And he created this practice of always being aware of the presence of God at all times. The point of this entire uh, book and this idea in the spiritual discipline is that that is what prayer without ceasing means. As I wrote it down here, um, it's an, an awareness of our dependence on God at all times and making prayer central in the focus of our lives. Then it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Really, all circumstances. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, Paul writes, give thanks always. I had a t-shirt when I was in high school my dad gave me. It showed a cartoon character trying to catch a ball and it had bounced off his nose and the nose is now all red and it was give thanks in all circumstances 1 Thessalonians 5.18 and I'm wearing this like okay because so it was just this what? so it hits you in the face thank you God that I missed that that felt so good again it's this always in all circumstances. Now it's interesting if you look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. Paul writes, "We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers." Then chapter 2 verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for you, for your sake before our God. And we pray most earnestly, day and night, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul has already said it three times in this book. To be thankful in all circumstances. And here, it's just simply carved out again in this context of rejoice always, pray always, give thanks always. Here's the problem. This is what makes this very difficult. In life, things happen. In life, bad things happen. In life, really bad things happen. These are the circumstances of life. When left to ourselves, the pain of life would bury us. As you mentioned, we can't do this on our own. It's simply not possible. We've talked about this before. How can people live without Christ in their lives? How do they survive when life happens? They cry out, they get depressed, they medicate, 
they opiate, they alcoholate, they will do whatever is necessary to numb it so they can't feel it. But with God with us, Emmanuel, with God for us, with God in us, we can rest on His sovereignty in all circumstances. Spurgeon again puts it this way. The position of our text is very suggestive. Observe what it follows. Pray without ceasing. It comes immediately after the precept, rejoice always, as if that command had somewhat staggered the reader and made him ask, well, how can I always rejoice? And therefore the apostle appends the answer, we'll always pray. The more praying, the more rejoicing. Prayer is a channel to the pent-up sorrows of the soul. They flow away, and in their place, streams of sacred delight pour into the heart. At the same time, the more rejoicing, the more praying. And when the heart is in a quiet condition and full of joy in the Lord, then it will surely not draw nigh unto the Lord in worship. However, note that immediately follows that is, in everything, give thanks. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. I love that phrase. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. When we joy in God for what we have and believingly pray to Him for more, then our soul thanks Him both in the enjoyment of what we have and in the prospect of what is yet to come. These three texts are companion pictures representing the life of the true Christian. I wrote it here, to give thanks in all circumstances is, to, is a choice to trust. If you are grumbling, you're not thankful. Your grumbling leads to discontent. Your discontent leads to bitterness, and your, dis, and your bitterness leads to anger. And now you are quenching the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Well, in Ephesians 4.30 it says, don't grieve the Spirit. This is a little, they're not the same. So, just make sure you don't conflate them. But quenching the Spirit, I mean, what, what is the song? Um, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan it out. It's that simple. Don't let the enemy get inside your head and start blowing out the flame that is burning within you. Despondency, idolism, immorality, all these things are earlier mentioned in 1 Thessalonians as things to watch out for. And ultimately, they destroy that great spirit within you that God has given as a gift to guide he says in verse 20, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now, that verse, again, creates a whole bunch of hullabaloo. Uh, <coughs> there are those who like to pull this verse out and say this means that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended in the first century because he's saying, um, and, and it just gets all muddled up. 
The idea of prophecy is those who are speaking truth from God. You might say, well, God doesn't speak that way. Um, actually, I think he does. It's just not necessarily brand new revelation. As in, you need to translate my golden scrolls I found in my backyard. That is a prophecy of Joseph Smith and the Mormon church. That's something new. The prophecy or the ex, um, exploration or the exposition of the text and these great pronouncements that are made, but it says to test them. You know, I read widely. I read a lot of material that I disagree with. Partly I'm curious to what other people are thinking, but partly it helps me refine my own thinking. And so if I read something that makes me mad, that's a good thing. Because I have to say, huh, someone's actually thinking that way? Wow, that's bizarre. So let's come with a counter to it from the, from the Bible, from Scripture. But you're testing it. 1 Corinthians 14.29 says, Let two or three prophets speak, and then let others weigh what is said. Let them speak. It's very possible that in the Thessalonian church, there were some folks who were standing up and making pronouncements, and it was creating some division in the group. And Paul's basically saying, don't despise their speaking, but test what they're saying, and then hold fast to what is good. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. I think that kind of speaks for itself. And then he comes into this fascinating benediction. And I know we've run out of time, but I have two little things I want to point out. This is just for all you Greek students in the room. Don't all jump up at once with enthusiasm. <laughs> the word completely, verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In Greek, it is spelled H-O-L-O-T-E-L-E-I-S, holotelis. We have the teleos, which means complete. This is a form of that. Holotelis is only found here in the New Testament. It's a unique word, and it means to be through and through to be full, to be complete. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of, of Christ. Well, it says may your whole, W-H-O-L-E, spirit, that is a Greek word spelled H-O-L-O-K-L-E-R-O-N, holocleron. So you have holotelis, followed by holocleron, both of them meaning the entire thing. The whole of you, who, your entire spiritual body, your be, whole being. He's asking God to sanctify you in everything in who you are. That's an extraordinary blessing. Extraordinary blessing. In fact, if you want a way of how to end your letter to your friend, this is kind of not a bad way of saying it. But the last one here, and then we'll have to end, it's verse 27. 
Very unusual. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to read this letter to everyone. That's, wow. I'm putting you under oath? He's not kidding. He is saying, I want every single person in Thessalonica who are believers to have heard this. And I want you to make sure that they do. J. Vernon McGee, when he was doing his audio um, exposition of this text, he got to this one. He goes, well, I've done that because I just read that whole passage to you and we're done with 1 Thessalonians, so I did my duty. <laughs> I thought, okay, good point. Seriously, it's that idea of taking this word of God don't just ignore it, stick it on your shelf. I mean, you mentioned the fact that we've got so many Bibles everywhere and we've got those in the Congo, they're tearing them apart because they don't have one. We have so much wealth. And if we're not reading it to each other, if we're not reading it in a context like this, then we're not doing what the Scripture is asking us to do. Ah. Let me end our time. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, the word is so full. There is so much when it comes to the practical way of how we live our lives. It, and yet, we, we kind of already know this. So why do we forget so easily? It's why this type of study is so important that we can hear your word and hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.